You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. There is one thing we need to talk about, my mother says. Yesterday, when I came home from work, Lizzie was playing with something on the oriental rug, chewing on something. Lizzie is our new Labrador retriever. She is a frantic puppy who will soon grow into a frantic dog and be shipped off to a farm. She chews on everything. The only one of us who exerts any control over Lizzie is my brother Mike, who French kisses her with alarming frequency. My mother waits for me to make the logical connection. I do not. I didn't know what Lizzie was chewing on, my mother says slowly, so I went over to see what it was. I'm still not getting it because my brain has a good habit of locking up when in the presence of large, mortifying revelations. I went over to see what it was, my mother repeats, and as it so happened, she was chewing on a condom, a a used condom. My reaction to this news is physiologically complicated. I begin sweating. My sphincter goes into a lengthy spasm. A vision comes to me suddenly of my mother walking over to Lizzie and bending down to figure out what she is chewing on and realizing what it is and sighing the sort of sigh that only the mother of three teenage boys can sigh and staring down at Lizzie and the condom saying, bad dog, bad dog, and trying to decide what the hell to do. She is a neat freak. She is a neat freak particularly when it comes to the oriental rug, which is hand-knotted and beautiful, with intricate designs I have spent many, many stoned hours inspecting, a rug that frankly has no business in the living room that belongs in a boy-and-dog-proof vault. My mother tells Lizzie to sit and to drop it, but Lizzie will not, so my mother finally, reluctantly, grabs the edge of the used condom, which, to Lizzie, signals that it's time to play. She starts shaking her head like hyper dogs do and clamps down on the condom which, thanks to the sharpness of her teeth, has punctured already such that when my mother tries to pull it away, the latex tears and my mother is spattered perhaps in her actual face with my semen. So now I've got this invasive thought in my head, thanks head, which I know to be wildly inappropriate and which I know what's more as the child of two psychiatrists suggests some pretty unsavory things about me in terms of my Oedipal complex and my hostility toward women and the likelihood, awfully likely, that I will grow into a sexual deviant who seduces women in the unconscious hope of staining them with my semen and or has sexual relations with dogs. I glance at my mother. She has that look that says, I know what you are thinking, Stephen. So I say to her in my head, Oh yeah, what am I thinking? And she says in my head, quite calmly, Your father and I have discussed the matter. We both feel these thoughts are within the normal range of adolescent neuroses and nothing that 35 years of therapy won't cure. Steve Almond is the author of the short story collections My Life in Heavy Metal and The Evil B.B. Chow, a novel titled Which Brings Me to You, co-authored with Julia Baggett, and the nonfiction work Candy Freak. His new book is a collection of essays titled Not That You Asked. Thank you for joining me, Steve. Sure. Steve, this is a really interesting collection of essays because although you cover a variety of subjects, in the end it seems like a, a portrait of yourself as a writer. Yeah, you know, the... the um 
you don't set out with a book of essays to, uh, oh, well, sometimes people want to write about one thing. I'm too disorganized. My head's all over the place. And I just have particular things that stick in my craw, moral issues, political issues, pop culture stuff, ex- crazy experiences I have, used condom experiences, whatever it is. And um, I just, that's what I write about. I write about what I'm obsessed with. And so in a certain way, um, you know, one of the things that is revealed to me when the, I read the collection, you know, from start to finish is like, oh, yeah, and you're also, I'm also obsessed with, you know, kind of why I've chosen to write and what it means to write and what your moral responsibility is and just the mechanics of sitting down every day alone in a room and, you know, making a bunch of decisions in consultation only with your own whacked out imagination. I was really interested in the portrait you have of the writing life, and there are two that we see here <laughs> quite well, yeah. uh, Kurt Vonnegut and yourself. And generally, when we see writing, we just see the final, finished, polished product. It's in a book. It's beautiful, and it's generally perfect, or at least the words are spelled correctly. Right, right. And, but there's so much that we don't see, so much ugliness and badness and you should we only see the tip of the iceberg you show us the ugly underneath yeah well this is the thing about writing is that people have a very any of the arts i think you know people probably look at a jackson pollock and just think oh he just drips some paint oh i could do that i can make a jackson pollock and you just want to slap him you know it's not like artists suffer more than other people that's nonsense everybody's got their share of suffering but it is true that especially i think literary artists Kind of, they're in the business of investigating the emotionally dangerous moments in their lives. And they do that work alone. And that work requires a lot getting past your own evasions, which takes a long time as it turns out. So for instance, somebody like Vonnegut, who is known for the godlike assurance of his voice, he just sounds, he's like Twain. He's just got a voice that sounds so natural, so conversational, so easy. You sort of look at his stuff. I think this is why I loved him so much as a teenager, because he sort of makes it seem like, yeah, you just write, you just say what the sort of common sense thing, and you'd come up with all these great plots, and it's just like storytelling. But... (laughs) But what I realized when I went to see Vonnegut's papers is he had to go through so many bad decisions, so much economic struggle before he came to, for instance, Slaughterhouse-Five. You look at the early drafts of that book, and they are not terrible, but they're just not brilliant. He hasn't gotten, he hasn't figured out the way to tell that terrible, wrenching story of being stuck in the, you know, the firebombing of Dresden. He's still trying to be too cutesy and avoiding it or trying to strike a sophisticated pose and be like Hemingway writing the story. And he hasn't loosened up and allow, allowed himself to really be who Kurt Vonnegut was, this kind of whacked out combination of moral concern and sort of science fiction, crazy imagination and, um, and just bare bones, flat out honesty. It's such an emotionally honest book. And you realize when you look at that or when you're, you know, when you're trying to make a life in writing that there's just, it's about 99% failure and 1% success. And people only see your success, but, you know, that doesn't mean, and, and in, some, in some sense, the 99% failure is what allows you to, you finally get sick of your own bad writing and your own emotional evasions. And that's what happened with Vonnegut. You see it in the manuscripts. You see all the false moves and all the bogus stuff, and then he finally gets tired of it and just tells you the truth, and it just hits you like a, you know, like a rocket. It's like, oh, my God. 
Well, also, that writing wasn't all he was doing. He had a tremendous workload in his personal and private life. I mean, he had three kids of his own, and then his sister and brother-in-law died within 48 hours of one another, and he adopted uh, their three kids. So now he's got six kids. Here's the other thing. Look, in this culture, it's very simple. You want to sell stuff, you'll make plenty of money. You want to try to get people to experience their internal lives and their sort of unbear the bad news of their hearts, you're going to make bubkiss or very little. Um, and Vonnegut was really trying to do the latter. And at the same time, he was trying to figure out how to support a family. So the guy was teaching school and he started a car dealership he tried to invent a board game you know he was like what am i going to do to make money um you know in the end people sort of say well he became a famous novelist but they don't realize there were the salad days of like 10 or 20 years where he was just running a continuous hustle to try to survive in the book too we see your own beginnings as a writer and there there are are many parallels to to Vonnegut's beginnings as a writer. Yes. Humbleness. <laughs> yes, except that I suck a lot more than Kurt Vonnegut. Um, every writer goes through the same arc. You you have this weird, dangerous feelings inside you that you want to somehow express. You don't know how to make it work, and you hide from it for a long time. You know, John Prine says, "I love this line: Your heart gets bored with your mind, and it changes you." Well. I was a journalist reporter basically for seven or eight years before I really got serious about trying to write fiction and do sort of whatever, creative literary work. And, you know, I needed the business card. I needed the health insurance. I needed the approval of my family. I needed to be able to go to a party and say, yes, I'm a journalist. I'm a reporter. See my byline every morning, you know. Um, And it takes a lot of guts and maybe some foolishness to essentially say, I'm going to be a writer. And people then say to you, well, what have you written? And you're like, oh, yeah, you know, I have a story in the Podunk Review. And they're like, what's that? You know, and for five or six years, often longer, for me, it was longer. That's all you have to say. You can't say, well, I have a book. And even if you do say, well, I have a book out, they'll say, oh, how sweet. You know, I love Tom Clancy or Daniel Steele. And you'll be like, yeah, I don't think you've ever read or heard of my book or ever will. But, you know, it's, you're choosing to affect a smaller number of people in a deeper way when you go into kind of the arts. One thing that you get at about the lives of writers that I think is really interesting because I think it's a common feeling at, in society at large is this feeling of being a fraud waiting <laughs> to be found out, a, yeah. a, a doppelganger almost. Yeah. yeah, I mean, every writer has two voices inside of them. They're like two little... There's a, there's a little angel and a little devil, and the little angel says, you are a genius. Everything you write is just forged by God, you know? And, and, and the world needs you. You could rescue this world, this fallen world. And um, that's great. It gets you writing, and unfortunately, most of what you write is a stinking heap of narcissism, but whatever, at least you're writing. The other voice is this voice you're alluding to that says, essentially, who are you? And who made you the god of this pathetic playground? And nobody wants to hear your garbage. Nobody wants to hear your song of woe. Give up, okay? You're not going to get any money. You're not going to get any attention. You're not going to get any eggs. That voice, if it's too powerful, shuts you down. You get writer's block. It's this self-punitive thing. And the writer is always trying to balance those two things. It's like doing the tightrope over the cesspool or whatever. You're trying to avoid 
um, just blathering and writing in a self-indulgent way and a sentimental way, which means, you know, being false in the emotion. But you're also, so you want to be critical of your own stuff and recognize where you're BSing. But you can't be too critical, otherwise it will shut you down. Um, and so that's sort of what's happening when you're alone in that room making all those decisions. You know, you're, you're having very powerful self-loathing and self-loving feelings colliding as well. Self-loathing, now that's an emotion that we encounter often, early and often in your collection. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, yeah, I come by it honestly. I mean, that's the thing is that it's, to me, um, I, I always review my own books. There's a little newspaper that asked me to do this and I always do it it's like my talisman and I I do it because I essentially want to say to whoever might be out there in the critical culture trust me dudes I know how full of it I am um and I mean that ultimately the the kind of self-deprecation I use in the book is um it's just a part of Judaism it's a part of a Jewish attitude and it's I'm not saying the Jews have the you know, monopoly on that. There are other cultures who have the same kind of aspect. But for me, growing up in a Jewish home, very, you know, culturally Jewish, it's that thing of Woody Allen. He's always digging at himself. He's always taking, you know, taking the air out of his own tires. That self-deprecation is a defense mechanism. It is a way of, of fighting against that's that, you know, that voice that says, who, why are you so important? Who made you the boss? And also a way of being honest with myself. When I write, I write about um, feeling really ugly as a kid, and I did. I had two really good-looking brothers, and I was sort of gawky-looking. Now, look, the, it's not a matter of whether I am good-looking or not. It's how you feel inside, and every kid feels ugly at particular moments and embarrassed and mortified, and the path to the truth runs through shame. That's how it works, and a certain kind of a memoir or a book of essays, that's what people want. They want to feel less alone with their own self-mortification, their own, those moments in their lives where they've just felt ugly, unwanted, unloved. Um, and that's not the only thing, hopefully, that I'm getting across, but it is a lot of what my experience has been. And I, rather than, you know, dance around it or lie about it. I'd rather just be straight up and say, yeah, here are some of the awful moments that I've experienced and I survived them, you know, partly because I was able to laugh at myself rather than taking the situation totally seriously. And and you allow us to laugh at you. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) And and with you. Yeah, I hope it's with because it's an important distinction. Reality TV, to choose an example, okay, is all about people looking, laughing at the antics of other people, looking down on them. In the, in the literary world, we call it the ironic mode, you know, when you're looking down at the characters and they're just like these playthings for the author. But what I'm trying to do is to say, look, I felt ugly as a kid. I'm going to level with you and tell you about a couple of episodes that were completely awful. And I know you've got one in your closet too. You know, I know that you have a, an experience that you'll be able to read mine and experience your own and say, good, I'm not the only one who has felt that mortified at some point. So, you know what I mean? I hope it's laughing with. You get a great deal of humor in this book. It's very, very funny. And I'd like to talk to you about some of the, the writing structures you use to mm-hmm. evoke jokes. You like lists, and you use lists for, for comedic effect quite well. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, these are all things that, see, when you're writing, um, 
you don't, I don't think you can set out to try to write funny. I think you can write true and then forgive yourself of the darkness of the truth with comedy. I think it's our best cloak for grief, really. And this is true. Vonnegut was writing these grim, dystopic books that were also hilariously funny. Lenny Bruce, Richard Pryor, Chris Rock, any of our great comedians, those guys are grappling with dark issues. And so I'll have students who will sometimes say, like, oh, I need to make it funnier, and uh, I didn't want to get into it too serious because it wouldn't be as funny, and I say to them, don't you get it. The darker you get, the more you need the humor to rescue you. Just let it get dark, and then have the humility or the emotional flexibility to recognize that amid that darkness, there's actually some absurd and very true kind of humor coming through. So I'll use you know, whatever I can, whatever sort of rhetorical devices I can, um, you know, lists are relatively basic, but, you know, it's like there's there's sometimes where you just want to be playful on the page, and straight prose is great, but it's also nice even for the reader to be, not to have to read paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. One thing I, I really enjoyed, too, was, and I thought this was kind of unusual, you use this kind of uh, can one of the stories are, is written in cantos. It's your descent mm-hmm. into the hell of hateocracy. Right, and a, a number of the other of the essays are broken up into like chapters. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about that kind of decision? That's an odd decision for an essay. I think it comes from Vonnegut. Honestly, when I looked back at Vonnegut and looked at the way his novels were structured, and again, I was reading Vonnegut's novels over and over and over again at sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. That is making a profound impact on me at a time I'm not even a writer. I mean, I like language and I'm a big mouth, but I'm not like I'm a writer. And I won't be for another 12 years, really, take till I'm 30, basically, to work up the, the cojones to write. And But, you know, that stuff, when it gets into the groundwater like that, that playful approach, that sense of writing in a way that is episodic and that gives the reader those breathers, um, and that is more playful, gives you greater flexibility. Not every essay is written, you know, in those structures. But I did want to, I did want to use, for instance, to take the the demagogue days is that what this essay is called, which is about my experience, kind of having the right wing talk show people chew me up and spit me out. I did want, to, I thought when I was started writing it, you know. I kept thinking about Dante's first line, you know, when I came to the middle of my life, I found myself in a dark wood, you know, in my 40th year. And all this happened to me when I was 40. And it really was like a descent, these two weeks that I spent, you know, being bullied around by Rush Limbaugh and John Gibson and Sean Hannity, and all of whom, I think, by the way, are incredibly sexy men. I'm not saying taking anything away from their sexual charisma, which is electric. But they're also proto-fascists, and they really gave me a hard time. So I wanted to... You know, I wanted to be able to, I just said, wait a second, this is a kind of descent, and I need to be able to do what Dante did. I need to have like a uh, classification system, a schematic for this essay. So that kind of stuff just comes to you, and it's part of what keeps writing interesting, that for me anyway, as a reader, I want different forms. I don't just want straight, straight paragraph, straight prose. I want somebody who you know, we'll play with stuff and make allusions to other literary works and draw connections between them. And, you know, so you're always writing kind of what you want to read. I, I thought you had a, a you, you have many moments of just incredible insight and, and 
wonderful that's writing. That's the hope, yeah. <laughs> in, in, the, in this collection of essays. And one that was just a short, fairly straightforward essay was um, the one about the survivor guilt and, and how our current fascination with shows that involve forensic detection and missing people reflects some of our other anxieties. And it's really great insight. You know, when you don't watch TV, you suddenly, because I, now I'm not, my relationship to TV is complicated, and there's an essay about this, right? But I, I, I grew up watching TV. It was my babysitter, and I, you know, I would have suckled the cathode tube if I could have. Like I was completely an addict, and so when I got to be older and started to realize that I wanted writing to be important to me, I realized I got to get rid of this TV because it's too powerful. Okay, so I don't have a TV, but it's not because I'm a snob who's you know better than TV. It's like TV is more powerful than me, and I get it. Okay, it's the crack that I can't control. So when, as a result of not having a TV, when you suddenly kind of are hit with the blast of it, you recognize more than other people who, you know, have been watching all along, why are all our shows on prime time, all of them, about dead bodies? How weird that we're so obsessed with dead bodies. What's going on in the culture that every show, Cold Case and House and CSI Miami, New York, Las Vegas, why are they all about dead bodies? And it doesn't take a lot of um, psychological insight to to contrast that with what's actually happening in our culture. We keep going to war. Most Americans are protected from it because we don't have a draft. It's an all-volunteer army. Only the military families, right, are experiencing that. And there's a lot of people dying, like 3,700-plus in Iraq and however many in Afghanistan, and we don't see any bodies. They disappear without a trace. Our media doesn't expose us to them. We don't see the moral consequences of all that death. We didn't even see it at 9-11, right? That happened, and it was essentially, before it got turned into a big terrorist alert, it was the death of 3,500 people or 2,900. But we didn't see the bodies. They just disappeared. And there was this psychic vacuum that was created, and I think that's where all these bodies come from on primetime TV. I'm so happy to be able to include an essay like that in a collection because it's part of what I want. Those are kinds of observations that I want the mainstream media to be making. I want some egghead at the New York Times to figure that out and say, step back and say, look, culture, you're trying to tell yourself something here. You do feel bad about all this death that is happening in your name. You just can't say it to yourself directly. And so the pop culture is plugging in almost subconsciously to that survivor guilt. Um, you know, will that, will that cause a shift in policy? Da, da, da. Maybe not, but it might cause some people to look at those programs in a new way and say, wait a second, we don't have to create scenarios with dead bodies. We're creating a lot of real dead bodies, and that is our moral responsibility as a culture. One thing I, that I makes your book really enjoyable, oddly enjoyable, I guess, <laughs> is the way you like to dive into the cringe zone. There, there's lots of parts of this That's book. a good expression for it. The, we should have called it the cringe zone. That would have probably sold more copies. The cringe zone. Are you ready for the cringe zone? Uh, almost. What makes you so fascinated with this, uh, making the reader feel really uncomfortable? Hey, I just want to share what I got. You know, that's what it's all about. You know, it's the gift that keeps on giving, you know, like total humiliation. And that really is the truth. I mean... 
I don't, I set out to write about the experiences that stick with me. And I think that everybody, people who aren't in the arts, not writers, not nutbags like me, try to get as far away as they can from the cringe zone. They don't want to be there. But for me, if something terrible happens, right, some crazy reality show invades my life for a few days, right, or, uh, you know, I have some, you know, Dorco blogger kind of start launching ad hominems at me, you know, whatever it is, going on Hannity and Combs, these crazy experiences that are sort of the cringe zone, or my mom, you know, finds a used con. These are things that for me are like, they stick in my craw. And I haven't, the writing is a way for me to, in a certain way, make sense of these experiences. They feel humiliating and chaotic, but I'd really rather try to make sense of them. And it's almost like detoxing them in a way, if you admit to it. It's like they say in politics, the cover-up is always worse than the crime. And so I'm like, look, let me just get at my crimes or my cringe zone and not try to you know, front or pretend that I'm not walking around in a constant state of humiliation like every one of you. Your, your story of your uh, brief uh, infatuation or, or experience with uh, reality TV yeah. is, is very interesting because it brings to mind some things that we don't normally associate with writing. I mean, we don't think of writing in these kind of like superstar celebrity fame yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> well, that's where the culture is at, right? It's like instant fame without any work. And that's the illusion of reality TV as well. It's like everybody is getting 15 minutes by the time we're, you know, the, by the time the next season rolls around, we'll have covered about another 250 Americans will have been famous for 15 minutes for taking their bra off on TV or getting arrested by the cops or arguing in some contrived situation in a Las Vegas suite, whatever it is. But that, that essay was weird because I didn't, writers do want to have influence. They do want to speak to the culture at large. And there aren't people reading, right? So what do you do with that dilemma? For me, I'd written a book, and this reality TV show somehow had found out about it, and they thought I would be good on this show, totally obsessed about people who are freaky and obsessed with things. And, you know, so when you're an author you really are thinking always, how can I get more people to read my book? The deepest thing that I'm doing, how can I get people to it? And there's so few venues at this point, so few readers, that when you get an offer like that, it it activates that dream that you have of like, wait a second, I'll be on this show, and okay, they'll make an idiot of me, of course they will, but then there might be those, you know, I'll reach a million people. And if even 1% of those million people buy the book, my God, that's 10,000 books. That's amazing. You know, so you get this fantasy in your head, just totally dopey, but people are subject to it. And I also couldn't help but notice that when I would tell friends about this, friends who know, who are also writers, who have followed, you know, the books I've written, they were like so unbelievably impressed. Like I could say, you know, I got really good reviews for the last book. And they'd be like, oh, that's great, Steve. And I said, you know, oh, well, you know, VH1 is coming over to film me. They'd be, oh my God, VH1's coming over. Or can I be on TV? You know, it was like this crazy reaction. So it was partly about, the essay is partly about that siren song of fame, that f- siren song of instant fame, and, and the way in which you fantasize it will suddenly make you somebody. You know, all your doubts and insecurities will be erased. Um, and it will make you somebody. It will make you somebody stupid enough to appear on reality TV. You know. 
and you worked your way towards that with your persona that you called the candy monkey. Yes, the candy. <laughs> yeah, the candy monkey. I mean, you know, I wrote this book about candy and my obsession with candy. It was also a book about depression. It was a book about a lot of things. But I admitted to the fact that I've been pretty, uh, had a pretty healthy obsession with candy for a long time. And, you know, they wanted me to basically sort of jump around and swing from licorice rope to licorice rope and like really be like a monkey. I mean, they had other people on this show who were actively auditioning, jumping on furniture and getting tons of cosmetic surgery. And so in a sense, I didn't really get that until until they showed up with their crew that this is like, this isn't really about me or my life. This is about some phony persona that I have to make up to get on TV. And once that got too horrible, I just said, I can't do it. I mean, they asked me basically to roll around in candy on my bed, which is something I did do when I was five years old, you know. And it was just like this last little shred of respectability that was like, no, okay, you've taken all my clothes off, okay, Every shred is gone. You can see me in all my horrible naked glory, but just like, just leave one little fig leaf. And I did actually. And so of course they said, but we don't want you on TV. You won't roll on, you won't roll in candy. Why do we care about you? What what I found striking about the essay was that it was mostly, it was very funny all the way through and you played up the absurdities of the reality TV business Mm -hmm. and, and talked about your experience, how odd it was. But at the end the, the final conclusion of the essay, there's this moment of really authentic shame that I thought was really striking and well-written. Well, I felt bad. I mean, I made fun of it and played with it and tried to keep people laughing, but in the end, I felt like, why did you do that? And, you know, I'm trying to get my work across, uh, and, and, and I get that it's hard to sell books, and so, but why did you, I'm saying to myself in the essay, basically, why did I do that? Why did I allow myself to really sort of debase what I'm trying to do for a bunch of numbskulls from Hollywood. And the thing is, the people in Hollywood aren't stupid. They just make stupid shows. And it's it's terribly sad interacting. Maybe the saddest part of that experience was realizing that the producer and the camera people, they all had their own creative projects going on. And they all said to me the same thing to a man. They said, you know, this is just a money gig. I've really got a creative project that, you know, that I'm doing on the side that's like what what it really is like my real creative uh, self is. And I felt like saying to them, okay, well, you know, Vonnegut worked, you know, tried to invent a board game and Vonnegut did a, um, Vonnegut had a used, had, had a car lot and stuff. But at a certain point, you sort of are who you pretend to be, you know, and that's what I realized is that I was pretending to be the candy monkey and it, you know, if I'd gone any further with it, that's really who I was. And that's not who I want to be. I want to be a writer trying to do good, honest work, not a candy monkey. One of the things that I found quite striking about this book was your experience with the right wing, what you call the, the hateocracy. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, the backstory there is I resigned from my job at Boston College uh, in May of 2006 because they invited Condoleezza Rice to be the commencement speaker. I was an adjunct professor, part-time professor, and I basically said, yuck, that's a gross thing to do. She's somebody who's been untruthful to the American public about a war, and we shouldn't set her up as a moral example, and I don't want to collect a paycheck from you people. Forget it. I didn't give a lot of thought to 
that gesture. I mean, I hoped that it would inspire people, but I mostly was busy on a book tour and trying to buy a house. I had a pregnant wife living across the country. My head was in a lot of different places. What I didn't realize was going to happen is that the, the false moralists of our age, you know, the Sean Hannity's and Rush Limbaugh's and so forth, would fix on this letter, which ran in the Boston Globe and then was online, and would set me up as a kind of mini-me to Cindy Sheehan. You know, they, were, they were done uh, chewing up Cindy Sheehan, and I was going to be the next victim. It's what happens when people who are false moralists encounter people who they fear are real moralists, that is, make a real genuine act of conscience. They can't stand it, because essentially the right wing of this country has had to somehow create in their heads a narrative in which they're constantly the victims, they're being victimized, um, when in fact they have total control of the government, uh, every branch of it. They finally lost Congress, but for four years there, they essentially called the shots with everything. And yet if you listened to the radio and watched Hannity and Combs and so forth, it was as if the conservatives were like the communists in the 1950s. They were this oppressed minority that the homosexuals and the immigrants and the terrorists were going to destroy. You know, um, And that really requires... Uh, I think essentially the sort of the fuel, the Wheaties of the right-wing hatocracy is self-loathing. They convert that self-loathing into aggression. They live in a shame culture in which they only know how to attack and they don't know how to genuinely um, think about themselves as moral actors in the world. They're not interested in solving the common crises of state. They're mean children who want to bully people on the playground. And for me, it was fascinating and traumatizing, but also fascinating to suddenly be their chew toy for a couple of weeks and go on all the radio programs. I went on Handy and Combs, the TV program, and to really um, sort of say, okay, this is what it's like to take on the bully. A lot of the book is like that. It, it, it's me, you know, because I was bullied a lot as a kid and I kind of got a chip on my shoulder, it's me trying to fight back, mostly getting my ass kicked, but trying to fight back. I thought that was just amazing was the... Um, encounter you had with the AP reporter. That was so sad. I get a call. All right, so I'm getting, I got 800 emails in the space of a weekend because the, the letter went viral and all the right-wing bloggers and stuff started to, I got phone calls at home. They would send, put messages on their post board saying, you know, his, his number is listed, you know, hint, hint, call him at home and harass him. So I was getting you know, all these emails, all these phone calls, and a lot of media were calling as well. And this woman called named Brandy Jefferson. She called from the AP. And as a reporter, I knew that this was an important interview because the AP wire story about Condoleezza Rice's appearance at Boston College was going to go out to like 50 newspapers. It was going to be a big deal. This woman, I don't know how old she was. I know that she was a recent college graduate because as she informed me in the course of quote-unquote interviewing me, oh, when I was in college a couple of years ago, like people were always protesting about something that never did any good. What's the point? Now, I don't know if that is her version or her boss's version of objective reporting, but I was trying to say, you know, the Secretary of State has lied about important matters of state and it is morally shameful that she would be invited to Boston College, um, you know, the fact that her response was, why do you even try? What's this protest thing? It's totally boring. Uh, it's not going to do any good. It was like being interviewed by a valley girl. And I was like, you're an AP reporter. Don't you get that the fourth estate of this country is about holding people in power to account? 
where did you miss that in the orientation? Why are you a reporter? That's not to say that her reporting needs to be an act of protest, but it is it is essentially the force that did or used to keep politicians honest. I want to say to her, have you ever heard of Watergate, Brandy Jefferson? Get it? Should Woodward and Bernstein have just said, oh, forget it. This will never work. Nobody's going to care that the president has been lying to us. Uh, so it was the, the amazing thing about the experience was to recognize that it was so disheartening. Here's this young reporter in her early 20s, just getting her started a- at the AP, and already she had a totally cynical attitude that didn't even see her role as a reporter as potentially morally heroic, right? She was already like, what's the point of protesting? Guess, get me to the next assignment. Give me my paycheck and let me watch my TV. And I was bummed because, of course, with my students at BC, I'm always trying to not say anything to them about politics, but to say, you, you are a moral actor in the world. You must be compassionate. You must be intolerant of suffering. Um, and her attitude was, whatever. One thing that interested me was that you, when I saw you wrote about sports, mm-hmm. uh, m- the first thing that I'll, I'll confess came to my head is, was, well, how? why would he care about sports? Yeah. He's a really smart guy and a good yeah. writer. Yeah. A- and you actually explained to us why you care about sports. Yeah, it's it, you know, that question, why do I care about sports, dogs me, because I shouldn't. It's 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 ghastly. It is mean children and the survival of the fittest, and it's horribly racist, uh, and it's horrible economically. It's hypercapitalism run amok. Everything about it, it's military in its mindset. I should loathe. But, you know, I just grew up as a young, insecure kid loving these particular sports teams, and they gave me a certain way of existing in the male world and being able to have a language that I could speak with other guys. And that, too, is a part of who I am. And I'm also, in a kind of doomed way, I'm loyal. I'm loyal to the same three teams I've always rooted for, and I will never switch that allegiance. And believe me, it has been mostly like the experience of losing and being frustrated. I can't, I, I try to suggest to people, especially like my wife, who's like, why do you care about, she says the same, why do you care about sports? Like, it's in me. And for most men, it's in us. Not all, but most guys have an innate competitive drive and a, a kind of worship of physical power and beauty and the kind of miracles that these professional athletes can create. I always think of the book of Fan's Note by Frederick Frederick. Frederick Exley, and it's one of the great sports novels. It's this guy whose life is totally coming apart at the seams, but he worships the New York Giants. And he says at one point, and I'm paraphrasing, and I think this is just how every sports fan feels in their heart at particular dire moments. He says, I gave my life over to the New York Giants so that I might live. Meaning, this is how I feel alive when I'm rooting for that team. It's totally juvenile. It's pre-juvenile. It's like a childish but a lot of men in this culture, in case you hadn't noticed, are really spending a lot of their time, you know, kind of living the life of a 13-year-old. Um, and there is a part of me, although since having a family, I've weaned myself, but it's still in me. You know, I still want to know how my teams are doing, and I'm still rooting for them in a really kind of hopeless, passionate way. You make an interesting point, too, that true fans are, are energized not by winning, but by losing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm in, I'm, I, I live in Boston, so I know that for a fact. The pleasures of grievance. A lot of what the book about 
a lot of what this book is about is what I call the culture of grievance. That is that people really like to live in a state of complaining and unhappiness. And, you know, it's a primal state. Everybody knows it. The kid who's angry and gets up and storms away from the table and doesn't want anybody to comfort him. I was that kid. And sports fans, especially Red Sox fans, they love being sanctified by their own misery. They get off on it. They say they were happy about winning, but really, when I talk with them deep down, they didn't feel the same after the Red Sox won the series. They felt the sense of, ah, we've lost the one thing, that ecstatic grievance that made us special. Um, It's crazy. It's totally nuts, but that is how a lot of people walk around. They they want to have lost or been done wrong and reserve the right to complain about it. And, and also, sports is a is a incubator for writers in, in a very peculiar fashion, isn't it? Well, you know, uh, for me, I'll say what I one thing that you have to deal with when and I did play sports growing up. I was a pretty bad jock, but I was a jock. I was like really into playing soccer and later other badminton, squash, very macho games, obviously all of them. But you know. Writing, I think, does require some of the same things. For one thing, you have to be competitive. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I hope that writers aren't competitive with one another, but you have to want to excel. And you have to be able to fail in a public way in order to get better. And that, to me, is very familiar. My experience with being on uh, teams of whatever sort was of a lot of failing in public and trying to be stubborn enough to keep trying. And that's really what you're doing with writing. You are trying over and over again, despite the fact that you're probably not going to win. Right? I really enjoyed, too, even though I am one of these people, your, uh, part, your portions of your narrative dedicated to literary blogs in the internet. And in fact, when I was doing a search to look up and see if I could see any other interviews online with right. you just to get a sense of what to expect or what not to do. Uh, <laughs> How I, not to make me angry, right? <laughs> well, uh, I, I came upon, uh, in my Google search, I came upon somebody, um, somebody I actually know, Sarah Weinman, was talking about a discussion of your work mm-hmm. uh, on this blog called The Elegant Variation. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, I, I've just read his article about this. There's nobody discussing him on The Elegant Variation. That's right. This is the thing about lit blogs. They are, in their mission, their stated mission, great. There isn't that much coverage of books and literature in the mainstream media. They're, you know, they're kind of dying out. And so lit blogs are, um, in their mission, I think they're quite noble. Mainstream media isn't writing about books as much. There are a lot of people who are passionate about books, and they want to have a little community to talk with one another. And that's great. That's the Internet at its best. But, big but, a lot of what lit blogs really amount to are a kind of gossip-mongering, and oftentimes this culture of grievance that's in operation in our right-wing crazy radio talk shows, it's about tearing down other writers. Now, anybody wants to come after my work, hey, that's my, go ahead, you should, please do. I, I hunger for a critical culture that will tell me how I can write better and be a better artist. So that mission of Lit Blogs is great, you know, y- unite people in this noble 
and focus around literature, you know, and its relationship to the culture. Terrific. Um, the problem is that, in in fact, lit blogs tend to express what I call a sort of kind of they're part of this culture of grievance. They're about tearing down other writers and um, not their work. Interestingly, it's not about the work. Sometimes there are lit blogs that do serious reviews and serious assessments, but oftentimes it's just, I don't like this writer, not I don't like his work. And this is my real golden rule when it comes to the critical culture and criticism in this country. Come after my work, absolutely. I don't mean come after with a mean, but help tell me how I can be a better writer. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. Tell me what you don't like and why. I review a lot of books. I think that's a noble thing. That's in the interests of literature. But when it's, when it's about the, and this is, goes for good reviews or bad reviews, when it's about the writer, that is no longer serving the, the, the ends of promoting literature. It, that becomes People Magazine, basically, the People Magazine take on literature. And, you know, again, if, if any blogger wants to really critically assess my work, my work, and say, Steve Almond, the endings to Steve Almond's stories are didactic. Here's why. Here's an example. Steve Allen's essays um, are falsely self-deprecating. Here's an example. I'd be like, okay, gives me something to think about to try to become a better writer. But that's not what they're saying. They're saying Steve Allman's a jerk. Why is Steve Allman on this website? You know, it's, it's all about complaining. And it's a sad part of the, what's happened with the Internet. Rather than being about creating community and promoting what is the stated goal of these literary blogs to promote literature, it becomes about basically grinding your axe, you know, venting your spleen in an unedited way. What's interesting about the essay in the book is, you know, most of those people, I think, really forget that there's writers who are working hard to try to create work. They forget that because it's easy to type something into a keyboard. And so it was interesting for me to be able to confront a guy and say, I'm a person trying to create good, honest work. Here I am, you know. Will you engage me and recognize that I'm not just... Um, a kind of fictional creation of your blog world. Like, I'm a dude trying to do honest, good work as a writer. Um, so, you know, you rarely get that opportunity. It's kind of meta, but it was enjoyable for me to be uh, enjoyable. It was, ultimately, I wanted to be able to send that message, not just to this one particular dude, but to all the lit bloggers. Like, remember, you just are dashing something off on a keyboard, but there's some writer who's been trying to do the same work you're doing, you know, creating, who is a real person, and you better honor that effort by assessing their work, not just trying to assassinate their personality. You you have a lot of fun at your own expense with the fan, your fantasies of what you're going to do and just the, right. the language that you use when you talk about this guy. Yeah. Well, it's such a weird thing because I was saying to a, I was saying to a friend of mine, you know, this is weird. I'm invited out. This guy's been trash-talking me, again, not my work, me as a person, for a couple of years now. And I'm invited out to see him in L.A. Like, what am I going to say? Should I just ignore him? Whatever. And my friend is like, dude, he's in love with you. And I was like, what are you talking about? He hates me. And he's like, no, 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 no. Indifference might signal. But actually, hatred is a kind of distorted form of love. You're passionately engaged with somebody. So, you know, that's... And it, w it occurred to me that in the end it is a weird thing because I don't know this guy from Adam. 
you know, really, uh, other than people sending me links saying, you know, he's bad-mouthing you again. I don't know who the dude is, but he knows who I am and seems to be following in a kind of creepy way, you know, what's happening with my career. And so I wanted to play with that. You know, part of the purpose of the essay essentially is to say, writers aren't helpless. And they're not helpless when they encounter a blogger, a bully in the blogging world. And they're not helpless when they encounter a bully in the political world, you know, Sean Hannity or whoever it is. We are capable of fighting back. And I don't mean in a thoughtless, angry, aggrieved way, but in a way that says, look, you, you know, you want to you, you wanna, uh, give somebody crap, uh, you're going to be held to account for it, okay? You can't just exist in a little bubble. I really saw, the, I, and I continue to see, like a website like Gawker. I will get occasionally links to this site, Gawker. They're like the Fox News of the, of the blog world. They're just, all it is, is a bunch of in kids who were insecure in high school and became cruel and figured that cruel wit would basically help them deal with the fact that they don't like themselves very much. Just tear down everybody else because they feel like crap about themselves. And I kind of had it with that. I mean, I think everybody's had it with that. I don't think you need to be falsely idealistic. But how about just beyond the age of 13 in your outlook on the world, right? Unless you're engaged with sports. <laughs> well, in a certain, yes, touche. The, the reality is that um, there's inside of everybody a good good person and a bad person, a grown-up person and a childish person. And in our politicians... It's fair to say we want you to be a grown-up when you are doing grown-up things like considering going to war in a country, okay, or figuring out how the wealth, the unimaginable wealth of this country will be divided. You know, we want you to be an adult, not a child in those instances. For me as a writer, I want to be adult, an adult in my own work. I want to be an adult when I deal with my family, my wife, my child. But I do want periods where I can just be a kid hoping that the Oakland Raiders don't get their asses kicked sideways this week again, you know. One thing that really helps people become adults is having children. Yeah, that'll do it in a hurry. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, like a lot of people, increasingly, I waited a long time. Waited is the wrong way of putting it. I didn't get my act together for a long time. I was, you know troubled and trying to work through it and my work is in some ways a product of trying to work through that and grow up but I finally realized at around 39 hey you know this woman that I'm involved with is really terrific and we need to make a make it happen so I you know, committed to her we finally I, we got engaged and four days later she called to announce that she was pregnant now I was pretty sure the kid was mine I should add parenthetically um, you know I was delighted because I've always wanted to have kids, even though I've been maybe too screwed up to settle down with a woman. I've always wanted to have kids. I've always wanted to have a family and and enact that love. In in the end, even if you're a really ambitious writer, even if you get to be really well-known, you really are affecting the people around you the most profoundly. That's how it works in everybody's life. You really have the most impact, the most potential to enact your love and do good, the people around you. and. You know, I wanted to have that experience of being a parent and being a husband. And I had my time to be a young guy, you know, screwing and screwing up. I've had that. I want to have this experience, this deeper um, emotional experience. And it scared, the, I mean, it just scared me witless. But 
that's good. It's good to be to love something so much and to be so worried about something that you're scared. And, and you have a lot of fun with that fear that yeah. I think all of us have had in your essay in which you imagined the many demises. Yes, the 10 ways I killed my infant daughter in her first 72 hours of life. I tell you, it was the weirdest thing. You know, I, you prepare, you go to these classes, you read the books, but in the end, you don't have an instruction manual. And every first-time parent in that first 72 hours is in a state of abject fear. They've gotten no sleep. They're totally cranking on adrenaline. And they've got this little thing. It's like a dry fetus. It doesn't know how to do anything. Those babies are so tiny and so just precious and fragile looking. And the nurses, of course, in the hospital, they just toss them all around like they're a football, you know, totally casual about it, which calms the baby baby down, interestingly. But for me as a dad, I was just like, oh, my God, everything that happened, you know, she had her first poop, and it was merconium, which is this weird-looking substance, right? And I was like, oh, my God, something's coming out of her, honey. Oh, my God, she's got cancer. Something horrible is happening to our baby. It's like, yeah, she was pooping, you know, or she started going... <laughs> You know, like what I thought was like choking, not being able to breathe. And, you know, I'm like, oh, my God, honey, something's happening. And she's like, yeah, that baby. Oh, how cute. She has hiccups. You know, I just wasn't putting two and two together because you're so worried. And it's this crazy thing because, you know, I've been in charge of like a pet occasionally. I've never had emotional responsibility for like this baby where this dark thing is in the back of your mind of like, the baby cannot die on my watch. This would be too horrible. Like I would never, the rest of my life would be ruined. My wife would never forgive me. Um, and I know that's a horrible thing to say, but I think a lot of parents, especially dads, feel that early on, that abject terror. And so, you know, I wanted to write about it, but in a way that was, you know, not like so heavy that it would be funnier. You know, dead baby jokes are always funny. <laughs> I, I also really liked the... Um, the way that you talked about your moment with, with Hannity, what you called the Welch moment. The Joseph Welch moment. People might not remember Joseph Welch. He was the elderly lawyer from Boston who finally confronted Senator Joseph McCarthy during the Army McCarthy hearings, and he says to McCarthy quite famously, have you no decency, sir? At long last, have you no decency? And it's that moment that in the popular imagination really always plays as the the pivot where people realized that McCarthy was a bully and a demagogue and that he didn't have the interests of the state at heart, really. He wasn't trying to protect us. He was actually trying to destroy us, make himself a star in the process. And I, in my errant effort to make my stand, quit my job, you know, call Condoleezza Rice out on her lies, galvanize you know my fantasy that I would galvanize a kind of public protest against her and in a larger way start to get the public to question the actions of this administration I think that I had a fantasy a positive fantasy that I would be able to have that kind of a moment you know and in a certain way as I suggest in the book that doesn't just come from me being just a political person or a left-leaning person. It comes from my family. It comes from growing up in a family filled with angry, aggrieved, self-loathing little boys who, you know, beat the hell out of each other psychologically and, and physically. And, you know, you're always looking to cure those childhood traumas that you never got through. And you always are. And so I wanted in this essay that was in a certain way about 
politics and our current realpolitik, I wanted to say, but look, it always comes from your family. Vonnegut said to me in that panel that he did, somebody asked him, what is your essential topic? And Vonnegut said, I write again and again about my family. Now, if you read Kurt Vonnegut's books, you would say, you do? That's crazy. You write about your family, you're writing about anything but your family. But deep down, the issues he was grappling with and the feelings and the the anxiety about whether people are ever going to be happier and treat one another better is, dates straight back to his family. You're always writing about your family. And you begin the book with that, too, where you talk about your mother as your archivist. Yeah. Well, she, you know, she yeah, she has had to be. And I want to say that you were talking about the cringe zone and how, how can I free, so frequently go to the cringe zone. And it's true that most people don't. I'm very very lucky. My folks are both psychoanalysts. They were psychiatrists when I was growing up. They spend their time in people's cringe zones. They're interested in those cringe zones because that is what, that is where people are the most real in their radical internal experiences. They're sort of the unbearable feelings that they can only share talking with uh, whatever therapist. That is what I, I want um, my writing to get to. Now, it might be in a fictional disguise or it might be in a book of essays, but I always want it to get to the most dangerous emotional place. The place where we really fear that this is this is all we are. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's that fear that it will never get better. I'll be ashamed forever. I'll be lonely forever. I'll never find love. Um, people feel that all the time. They don't want to admit it. They want to skip past it. They want to try to distract themselves out of it with some dumb reality TV program or whatever. But it really is kind of who we are. We, we have this burden and gift of consciousness and self-consciousness and awareness of our own feelings. We're not just a collection of instincts. And it's what makes us fascinating and ultimately what makes us be able to be compassionate. I always think about that last scene in The Grapes of Wrath, which is maybe one of the most famous scenes, you know, in any book. And The Grapes of Wrath is, I think, you know, maybe the greatest social novel in American letters. And that last scene where this pregnant woman, has, you know, young woman, has lost her child and there's a man starving who they find along the way, one of thousands who were starving at that time during the Great Depression, and the last image is of her breastfeeding this man to keep him alive, a stranger. Um, and I just think, yeah, you know, the sheep don't do that. And as much bad stuff as we do to each other and to the planet and to the other species, we also are capable of that. Vonnegut wrote about it over and over again, and I hope that in a way that isn't too moralizing and, and horrible, I'm trying to following that tradition of saying, look, we can enact the better angels of our nature. We're capable of it. We're capable of living up to the Beatitudes, you know, to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Sermon on the Mount. Um, we, we aren't always capable of it, but we should be hold that out as a thing that we're constantly striving for. We have been speaking with Steve Almond. His new book is Not That You Asked. Thank you for joining me, Steve. Absolutely. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.